Join us at Film Society of Lincoln Center on Thursday, April 4th, for a film comment free talk with director Claire Denis and actor Robert Pattinson from the singular new film High Life. For more information about this special event, visit filmlink.org. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, with features on Claire Denis' High Life, Alex Ross Perry's Her Smell, Who Bows an Elephant Sitting Still, reviews of new, forthcoming, and streaming releases, and much more. Subscribe today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rippold, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. This is the latest edition of The Rep Report, our regular discussion of movies showing in repertory houses. Nellie Kaplan is a director that more people should know about, and thanks to a forthcoming retrospective at Quad Cinema, Kaplan should get her long-overdue recognition as a fascinating filmmaker, a ferocious satirist, and fearless feminist. On this episode, we discussed her historically difficult-to-see films, including A Very Curious Girl starring Bernadette LaFont. We also discussed some current and upcoming series, such as Film Forum's program on Faye Ray and Robert Riskin. And we give a special tribute to the Nitrate Picture Show at the George Eastman Museum. I'm joined by Rep Report regular Nellie Killian and special guest Chris Wells, director of repertory programming at Quad and a longtime haunter of rep houses. Let's go to the conversation. Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. Um, this is Nick Rapold, Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment, and this is our latest episode of The Rep Report. I'm very pleased to be joined by... Um, Nellie Killian, programmer and um, board member at ScreenSlate, as well as contributing editor to Film Comment magazine. And a very special guest... Chris Wells. I'm the director of programming at the Quad Cinema here in New York. I'm very happy to have Chris here. I think this is the first time you've done a podcast with First us? time. It's a very special treat yes. for all involved. Yes. So. Um, and is it also we're coming up on the second anniversary? That is true. It's coming up on the second anniversary of the reopening of the Quad, which is very exciting. It's been, I can't believe it's been two years. Yes. Uh, and of course, the Quad also has a connection uh, with phone comments since our, our previous editor-in-chief Gavin Smith uh, works there as well. So this was fated to happen, basically. And we're actually starting coincidentally, entirely coincidentally, I promise our readers, our viewers, and our listeners who always expect impartiality from us, with the Nellie Kaplan series, which is uh, a, I mean, I can't, well, you, I mean, Chris, you can probably tell us when the last time there was any Nellie Kaplan series of this to this extent. It, in our research, it's actually, we, we do this a lot. I'm sure you did this when you were programming at BAM, too. When you do a retrospective of someone that hasn't had one in a while, you mm -hmm. want to know when the last one was, if ever. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to go back to the filmmaker themselves that they're still alive and ask them. We think it's the first one in New York, which wow. would be wild. Yeah. But you, you don't think that that's possible. And then we did, you know, the first thing we did two years ago was the Lena Vertmuller retrospective, and that was the first time she'd had a retrospective in New York, which seems crazy. Yeah. It seems like someone would have done it, but we trolled through the archives and couldn't find wow. any evidence. It's sort of sadly, though, you know, Nellie Kaplan has this career that seems just sort of pathologically overlooked. That she's mm. this, you know, incredibly interesting filmmaker. She has this incredibly, like, vivid life story. She's like, 
you know, totally integrated into this like world of French cinema in the sixties, which is like one of the most storied eras and yeah. uh, places that there is. And yet still, I mean, I was watching some of her films and like, just trying to find like reviews and there's nothing. Yeah. It's, it's really wild. Yeah. I mean, the, the origin of us doing this series is we've been working Gavin in particular on a much bigger, on a much bigger retrospective or um, program about, female French filmmakers kind of from the new wave era kind of mm-hmm. up into the late 80s. And you would be stunned at the number of amazing movies that we found that never get revived, that never get talked about, that are not part of the official conversation, mm-hmm. especially in telling the story of French cinema history during this period. You know, A Very Curious Girl, Kaplan's best known film is 1969. We're talking like right kind of at the tail end of the new wave. But there are a lot of other filmmakers like Paula Del Sol made a movie called La Derive, which is mm-hmm. truly astonishing that, you know, is something that I've been wanting to revive myself for a really long time. So this is a, another program that this sort of came out of. We thought that Kaplan in particular, because she's made more movies, honestly, than a lot of those other filmmakers, as is the case mm-hmm. with a lot of female filmmakers throughout history. Several of them got the chance to make one or two movies, and then their careers petered out for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. And Kaplan actually has been able to, you know, she's made a, a handful of features, like five or six actual mm-hmm. films, which is a more a larger filmography than a lot of her kind of female contemporaries have. And then, of course, you start asking the question, why is she forgotten? Why are these films not revived? Because you watch them and they're great and they feel incredibly modern and they're really exciting. And and the, it's interesting to ask, like, why aren't the Lena Vertmuller movies revived also? Not that you just want to draw a line and say it's just because they're female filmmakers, but it's also kind of like the way they're presenting sexual politics in that's very different but Vert Mueller's movies are very troubling in a way that are not politically correct now and I think a lot Mm. of people don't know what to do with them or where to put them they want them to have maybe a more simple feminist message where they don't whereas I feel like the Nellie Kaplan movies while it's not like Lena Vert Mueller movies which I also had like sort of a problem connecting to like I feel like I was like immediately drawn into the Kaplan movies I was seeing, but there is like a, you'll be watching something that is a comedy and it's like brutal. You know, there's like this level of violence in it. Um, the women are, you know, very active characters, but there's a level at which like you can really feel them getting kind of pushed around. Yeah. And and then, and then pushing back too. Yeah. Um, a very curious girl screened at Light Industry late last year, I believe, and Laura Mulvey introduced mm-hmm. it. And you were talking online, Nellie, a little bit about, I wasn't there for it, but her introduction and kind of talking about the brutality of the movie and how tough it was. And then the audience realized it's kind of, a, it's a comedy and they, they were yeah. laughing. Well, it's also, I mean, it is the thing sometimes I think when you have a obscure filmmaker who like, you know, is political and all these things and you know, Laura Mulvey is introducing it and like you think you're maybe, you know, you're there to see it and you know it's important, but um, you get this, you get this intro and it's just, you know, a relentlessly sort of brutal film about, you know, women's like bodily autonomy and like all of this stuff. And I was just like, man, this is going to be so rough. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and, and again, there's not a lot of information about the movies right. out there. Right. And it's like five minutes and I was like, Oh, this is a sex comedy. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which I was like, right. oh, oh, I was not expecting that at all. Which, which all of her films are, to a degree, or have very comic yeah. 
elements. Um, and, and and that could be part of maybe how why people don't know what to do with the films because yeah. they are kind of tough to read tonally, um, which is part of what makes them so exciting. Yeah. But, there, it, but it also raises this question that like we're male cultural gatekeepers who were critics or programmers at festivals n- rejecting these movies, not just because they were made by a woman, but they're, they don't treat the men well. I mean, the men are emasculated and humiliated and it's like, it's brutal and it's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like almost the, it, it's the two sides of that spectrum. On the one hand, I think we were talking a little bit on the way up here that part of what makes not just a very curious girl, but some of these other films. So interesting is there's a level at which just by like these women having sort of uh, agency and kind of like being very in, in control or like taking a level of control. What all the male characters are just usually kind of completely confused by what's going on. And it takes them so long to adjust to the idea that this woman actually knows what she's doing, that she gets away with so much. Yeah. You know, yeah. They, they are constantly so yeah. flummoxed in these movies. And it's it's so, she, she gets how entertaining it is just to watch that process happen. Yeah. Um, we were talking a little bit about Velvet Paws, which is one from 1987, which is a movie made for TV, essentially. There's so little information about this movie online. And... I think it's a real treasure. It's so much fun. It ha- it's 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 a it's a farce. It's set at like a country house basically. It's very, you know, springtime, flowers are blooming, and the basic setup is it's two women realize that they're both married to the same guy and they <laughs> want to punish him. And they realize that he's a bigamist and so they're going to trap him in the house and kind of humiliate and emasculate him. And that's we were trying to think of other movies with that premise because yeah. it's such a great set up for something right. and this this female revenge that she often traffics in right. that like because Nelly programmed yeah. an amazing series at BAM years ago with Thomas Beard called Vengeance is Hers. Which we almost included very curious girl mm. in but there wasn't the restoration and stuff at the time. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And and so many of these Kaplan films fit into that exact theme of Vengeance is Hers. You guys already took that title or else like it could have been yeah. <laughs> for for the series. Um, well, it's also, it's interesting. She, in uh, Velvet Paws at one point, like when this guy is just like totally like brought to his knees by this situation, mm-hmm. he calls them um, a, a couple of bluebeards, which is like so amazing to hear like women <laughs> called bluebeard. Mm-hmm. But then um, when she talked about a very, I read an interview with her uh, with Joan DuPont where she's talking about a very curious girl and she was like, the basic premise is it's a witch who refuses to be burned and instead sets fire to everyone around her. And I'm just like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but great. it is like all of these things. Like, she's just like, no, just like throwing it back. Yeah, it, it, it's, yeah. it's always about fighting back in each of these movies. Well, what I was going to say, the sort of opposite end of the spectrum is, of course, there is uh, this level at which it's definitely feminist, but in something like a very curious girl, like I, I could imagine also seeing it and not knowing what to do with the comedy of it when it's like, you're also just seeing Bernadette LaFont being like groped and sort of yep. mistreated and like all of that. I mean, she doesn't pull any punches with that mm-hmm. either. So there is a level at which I, I imagine there's a deep discomfort with like not wanting to show something anti-feminist, even right. though it's like clearly, mm. you know. Well, it's just complex, which is what makes it so interesting. Yeah. Even in, in Velvet Paws too, LaFont feels some remorse about what she's doing about kind of this entrapment because she still loves this person that she's married to who but he conned her by you know leading this double life and yet she still can't help but actually have emotions for it so she's still a human being and not just this one-sided character seeking vengeance Mm -hmm. um 
Yeah, and then there's Nea, which is kind of this really fascinating film, which was um, a failure, it seems, critically and financially. It was made in 1976 and was retitled Young Emmanuel here to capitalize on the oh, Emmanuel man. craze. We actually did an Emmanuel retrospective at the Quad not too long ago, and I didn't include it in that series because I wanted to save it for this, but it is a perfect counterpoint to a lot of the Emmanuel movies, not just because it's one actually made by a woman, but it's it's made, uh, it's an adaptation of one of Emmanuel, the actual author, Emmanuel Arson, her, a, a book that she wrote, and it's about, it's a young girl coming of erotic age story, but it's about her writing that book. It's about her writing her story. And so she's doing the research on it and she's learning from her mom who's who's a lesbian, you know, or who has lesbian tendencies. And it's her own erotic journey, but she's taking it into her own hands. She's the one who's in control of it the entire time. Mm-hmm. And so you're getting, you know, lesbian sex scenes that you get in other Emmanuel mm-hmm. movies, but you get the lead character watching them herself. She literally puts on her glasses. You're actually watching her watch it. And you want to talk about what she's doing with that that gaze is just so fascinating and throwing it right back while also still fulfilling the expectations of what an Emmanuel movie should be <laughs> delivering in the seventies. So Wow, that's that's pretty incredible. Yeah. Um just just to just quickly to the question about another movie like with the plot of Velvet Paws for some reason, the only thing I'm thinking of is Mickey and Maud. Does that fit the bill? Well, you, you know, it's it has an, an interesting that well, there's a whole bigamy subgenre. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've long thought about like a Mickey and Maud and the bigamist double bill, the Idol uh-huh. Lupino and the Blake Edwards movies, right. because right. they're the same movie, right. but uh-huh. both of those are from the perspective of the guy. Right. Exactly. And it's about his existential right. dilemma. You know, in Mickey and Maud, it's this farcical conceit. It's Dudley Moore. And he's like, oh man, I've got two wives. <laughs> and in The Bigamist, yeah. I forget who the lead of The Bigamist is, but he's so tortured in it. And you actually feel sympathy for him. I mean, that's, that's Ida right. Lupino there to make you feel bad yeah. for a guy who is married to two women. Right. That's just like the level of emotional feeling that she was, she was dealing with. Yeah. But it's rare yet to see the you know here it's the complete opposite where he's a fool in Mickey and Maud right. but here he's a fool but he is like you know literally like being you know f- tasked with doing chores and on all like hands and knees like crawling around this house I mean it's not quite level well, of, like also, the second half of audition but it is like and there's you know, also women there, are striking back and there is this uh-huh. kind of like supernatural element too. yeah absolutely which which her films yeah. have there, there is this like enchantment that they have too like almost yeah. a magical quality to them which is another thing that complicates the tone and it's you know, they are incredibly brutal and realistic at one moment, but yeah, they're touched yeah. with something. I mean, mm. in like in a very curious girl, like it, it's definitely like a sort of witch narrative, but um, in this mm. one, it's, there's this kind of like poltergeist in the house. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, his, yeah. his, the character's name is poltergeist, which is so funny. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's just like, she's unafraid to be goofy uh, in these movies, uh, which is really refreshing, but it's also, you know, these are some of the rarest of breeds, which are French comedies that are actually funny um, <laughs> because, you know, it's like Luc Moulet films are actually funny. Are there other French comedies that are actually funny? You know, it's like you go back and watch like the mainstream mode of those films. You talk to French people and they think they're the funniest things in the yeah. world and they are just death. Whereas these movies are actually <laughs> funny for an right. audience outside of France, I think. I mean, I think that they're... They're really hysterical, and she's unafraid to kind of go to those very silly places. She also has the Napoleon documentary, yeah, which is quite interesting given her sort of backstory. I mean, in some ways, it's like this meta 
revenge. Exactly. Uh, that she made this <laughs> movie. Oh, right. But yeah. um, Gantz was her um, mentor, mentor, let's say. but also romantic partner. Romantic partner. Uh, she was his mistress. He was married. And they had this sort of complicated relationship that, you know, ultimately when she's sort of struck out on his own, I think his support of her withered. Um, it was after they'd sort of broken um, apart. But then she ends up making this sort of retelling of the odyssey of his uh, making Napoleon and kind of gets to narrativize this like, you know, enormous, uh, enormous, ultimately sort of doomed undertaking of his. And like with her, mm. again, I think getting back to this idea of what the women in her Movies laugh, are like laugh, laughs. Yeah, and also like just like I'm actually in charge of this now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm the one who gets yeah. to have the final yeah. say right. about yeah. about his Which is also story. It, and it is fascinating documentary. Oh yeah, I mean yeah. She, she she has a really terrific or like really compelling just story yeah. as as a person. I I love that you guys at Film Comment you should read this online if you're listening to this. Mm-hmm. You uh brought up an uh, an article she wrote for Film comment from 1963, a can dispatch, yep. and it is remarkable. I mean, I, I would like to see more of her criticism and writing about film made mm. public because she is, as you would expect and hope, extremely opinionated and very funny and pulls yeah. no punches in that. Well, yeah. <laughs> in the intro at Leiden Street and uh, Laura Mulvey was there, Kaplan was making films, you know, when Mulvey was making films as well. Mm. And also they sort of found themselves on these like feminist film circuits together and you know Mulvey talked extensively in her interview just about how Kaplan was one of the most sort of captivating people you'd ever meet in your life that just from the moment you saw her she was like like the most magnetic and that uh it sounds like she would just go to these feminist uh film festivals and like it was like take no prisoners um (laughs) but i mean in the interview in film quarterly uh with joan dupont she's just like you know sniping right and left that uh like godard took everyone for a ride and like (laughs) you know yeah she she absolutely suffers no fools yeah Yeah. she's got nothing to lose (laughs) but it's not the sense that it's you know she's older and and doesn't give a fuck anymore it's more i don't think she ever gave a fuck yeah. right? no. and i think that's yeah. probably why people had problems with her you know over like the last 50 years very curious girl is 60 years old now and it's a movie that i when i mention it to people like blank stares and it's just and it stars bernadette lafont who's you know a certain something of a star of french film from that period in a lot of key movies from that era and I, our, you know, one of my coworkers was watching it um, at work for marketing purposes, and he just like was just blown away at like, how do I not know about this movie? Why is this not canonical? And yeah. hope, hopefully, that with this new restoration, which is really beautifully done by Lobster Films, they've restored a number of her movies, and we, we just thought it was a good occasion to kind of beyond this bigger French female filmmaker series that we have in the works to kind of spotlight these in in particular um and mm. give uh give a little more attention i mean I, I think like the the mulvey's fandom and then weirdly again she's defined almost or that movie is defined most by a man there's a famous picasso quote picasso is a big fan of it well she made a documentary about picasso exactly. before she made a very curious girl yeah and and he he has a, a quote that he compares it to buñuel which i think is like a pretty apt mm. comparison for what mm. she's doing in terms of her sense of humor and flipping off authority <laughs> and i think he says insolence raised the level of film art which is <laughs> like can't really get much better than yeah. Pablo picasso giving you that quote but of course you know that's that's the thing even in reviews in the time when it was reviewed by the times when it came 
out, you know, it's like, oh, it's it's Picasso approved. You know, that's mm -hmm. why it's like, okay, he's uh -huh. the one who's given his his stamp of approval yeah. on it. And that's why we should pay attention to it. Now, I remember when I was trying to track down that movie to watch a copy of it, I, to watch, to write about Catherine Brea, because I was curious about the, the echo and the title uh, just going on that alone. And, and yeah, and I, and I ended up having to watch, yeah, not a great copy of it. But I, I don't know, what what do you think in terms of like inheritors to, to, to her, to what she did? I would be really interested to hear Brea talk about her or what her opinions are. Kaplan is, Kaplan Briott can be extremely funny mm -hmm. and very dark and do really fascinating things with tonal shifts as well. Yeah. But um, less, you know, going straight for the last or less playful. I mean, these Kaplan films are sometimes very fun. A lot of Briott films are not, um, I wouldn't characterize as fun necessarily. <laughs> no, kind of grueling. I, I was actually <laughs> recently talking with someone we were trying to come up with like a list of uh, sort of women directors who work in satire. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. It was harder. Yeah. Than uh, well, we... I, I think that's part of what makes yeah. maybe her, maybe as a person, her presence, but as a filmmaker, so threatening to the men is like, what's more threatening to men than a funny woman? Because it's like, oh, you're, you're funnier than, than, than the men are. And it's just like, oh, you're beating them, not just at like a filmmaking game, but just like jokes. And, you, and the satire just directed directly at how, Easy, easily confused. These men basically are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, like, like, like every time they are such yeah. buffoons. Like yeah. literally, they're just like <laughs> such dolts in these movies. And it's so, it's just a great source of comedy. She just gets how beyond the political point, it's just endlessly entertaining to watch time and time again. It's impossible not to watch, but Nea, her young Emmanuel film, and not think of like Anusa Moore. Mm. Um, but you know, it's a radically different perspective on this you know kind of shop-worn french female coming of sexual age type mm. movie i mean in in nea early on when she's like i'm gonna write this erotic novel i'm gonna you know publish this and become famous and so she has to educate herself on you know on sexual manners and so she is writing at home and then starts masturbating and what does kaplan do while while Nea is masturbating, is she cuts to a cat licking herself back and forth. And it is just yeah. like, These it are... is hilarious. I mean, it's just like, who else has has the guts to like yeah. kind of pull that off in a movie yeah. like that? To constantly just like, you're watching this young girl do this and for whoever has a, you know, a creepier reason for <laughs> seeing that film, it's like, up oh. and now it's like a groaning cat like lying on its back in her cut with it. It's, it's hysterical. It also cats throughout 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 yeah. i mean lots of cats in big, all these movies big, big, yeah. big cat, yeah. cat I, I actually feel like yeah. now is the i mean there's there's like <laughs> there's like tarot cards in in yeah. like velvet paws oh, is like yeah. a perfect movie for right now you know it's like the characters <laughs> yeah tarot cards and crystal balls and cats everywhere i'm just like these movies should be you know i don't get why people don't know about them and and are not seeing them so now at least they're hopefully going to be more available. It would be great if these movies could be shown in other cities as well because they're DCPs. Hopefully other programmers are listening to this now and will be inspired or interested to want to book them because they're it's very easy to do now. Yeah. So yeah, I really hope that they get out there on a, a broader scale because I think there was a DVD box set of her work released in France mm -hmm. maybe a decade ago or so, but obviously nothing here, like no no availability for these these movies. So Yeah, no, it seems like a prime prime moment for, for them and and yeah i mean 
it's always frustrating to run up against the mystery slash non-mystery of, of, of you know, falling into, into oblivion. And But yeah, I think you really kind of described why that might be. And, and oftentimes just in terms of how distribution has happened in the past, it just right. seems like some of these were just non-starters for, for the people running running things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, what what else uh, what else are we looking forward to, or have have we seen recently? I know there's a series. I mean, just to give a shout out here, although it's not technically repertory, we do have our new directors, new films series coming up here. Uh, but we'll be doing a separate podcast on that, so don't you worry. But what else have we been uh, seeing? I, I of course just came back from vacation, so I'm. So, well, so you're gonna you're gonna punt on that one. <laughs> I'm gonna punt on that one. Well, There's a series of Bob and Ray, a Hollywood love story yeah. at um, Film Forum. Couldn't remember the title. Yes, mm-hmm. which um, I will say I haven't like sort of taken in the sort of scope of the series, but there have been a number of titles that I've seen. Um, Robert Riskin and Faye Ray were married, working together only once, but created um, a number of emblematic Depression era movies. So uh, of course, with him being a screenwriter and her being an actress. Um, so I saw two of the Capra movies in the series that were playing on a double bill, um, American Madness and The Miracle Woman, which, um, while sort of very different than Kaplan, um, you know, Capra's another person who I think sort of balances tones in an interesting way. Um, Fascinating, like, tonal detours yeah. in, in those movies. I mean, when someone like Cassavetes always talked about that Capra was his favorite filmmaker, and I think it was because of those abrupt changes in register that would go from just like, you know, like comedy to the most devastating tragedy, like beat to beat. Yeah. I mean, Miracle Woman was American Madness and Miracle Woman were both great. And both are sort of grounded with these like unbelievable performances, Walter Houston in American Madness and uh, Barbara Stanwyck in Miracle Woman. In Miracle Woman, she plays a, it starts, uh, have either of you guys seen this one? I, I saw it at Film Forum years ago. But yeah. in, in probably in a Capra series, I think. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, I, it could have been a Stanwyck series. It could have been a pre-code series. It could have been, any, you know what I mean? <laughs> there like, are a lot of yeah. reasons to show this one. Yeah, yeah um, it could have been. Yeah, anyways, uh, it it opens with this like incredible sort of monologue of uh, Barbara Stanwyck at the pulpit at this church, revealing that her father is just like died in her arms and um, was the preacher and he died because of the hypocrisy and like lack of generosity of the congregants. And mm. just immediately, you know, she's just this sort of rage against the congregation, clearing the room that they're all hypocrites. They all, um, you know, that they've driven, they drove her father to an early grave and, you know, uh, that she, they, they're trying to get her off the um, altar and she's just refusing and, um, well, it turns out there's a guy who's kind of like a carny and, and that just happens to have been in the church. <laughs> like, <laughs> Here comes the movie. Yeah. <laughs> He's very uh, taken with her sort of fiery um, delivery and turns her into the kind of face of this evangelical um, sort of snake oil operation where she ends up going on the road and you know, she's a, like a miracle worker and all this stuff. And, you know, this kind of like, you can't be a hypocrite if you know that everything's fake. Uh, <laughs> but like, <laughs> she ends up, you know, meeting this blind guy. Right. And then it's like, they kind of fall in love over these like weird puppet shows that he does for her. 
is a songwriter. It's like where you're just like, <laughs> this is so crazy. Yeah. But like, I, but every such a movie made in, in America in the 1930s. Every <laughs> single beat works. Where it's just like he's cranking up the toy piano again and mm. like gonna have his like puppet do a dance and like tell her that he loves her and you're just like tears are flowing and like <laughs> just like courting ridiculousness yeah yeah um but yeah it was incredible yeah mm-hmm. and then it yeah it ends on equally sort of uh, like psychotically dramatic note um but you know just this full range of you know fire and brimstone and mm-hmm. uh sort of you know uh, folk I don't know, entertainment and, uh, you know, preacher uh, sermons. It's just like mm. all over the place, new songs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I saw actually just last night in that same series, Thunderbolt, the Von Sternberg movie, which is pretty amazing from 29, I think. I believe it's his first sound film. Mm-hmm. And it's pitched right in that era. I think we've talked about this, Nelly, before, that fascinating subgenre of the early sound movies, movies made right on the cusp that, because the the implication always is those those first sound pictures are, you know, uh, uh, visually stodgy, that the equipment was so heavy and that they mm-hmm. couldn't move the camera. And, you know, they, they were they were burdened by the sound and, and it brought them down. Whereas this is a movie that, of course, I mean, von Sternberg was amazing. And so he's trying to find already creative uses. He's like, oh, here's my new toolbox. And what he's kind of doing with diegetic and non-diegetic music and off yeah. off screen space, he's already like, oh, I can have someone get shot off screen. And now you know this information. And it's just, he's like, oh, wow, this, this is what I can do now. Yeah, I feel like mm. there's, I mean, there's definitely also ones that were shot for silent and then they just add sort of a, right. uh, add a, a layer of sound to it. Those are, or, or like or, the, the ones where they shot two versions. Yes. I was going to say like, I, I feel like there's like a number, there was like a Tink Arnett movie I saw years ago. That's like in a, another carnival movie, I think, but like, um, <laughs> carnival movie series. Coming yeah. soon. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, where there's just like these moments where it kind of like, it's like the sound and like suddenly like you're in like a sound sequence mm. and it's just or like you're in a purely visual sequence but it all feels mm. just like everything feels so deliberate and like playing with it the, the, the like first sequence in thunderbolt it, it's of course the sound is mixed in odd ways so the, the you know this this character is they're in a park in the first scene and they're walking on gravel and it is so loud like the foley effect <laughs> of it where it's just like i'm really gonna show you that we're walking on gravel it's almost like the scene in modern romance where they're making you know doing like the running yeah. and like recording it <laughs> in poster just like yeah they weren't trying to get like a very subtle gravel walk sound they're like no 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 look at this yeah. look, look what we can do the miracle of modern gravel yeah no yeah. no no really it was just like very <laughs> very important you'll feel, feel the that. pebbles under your shoe <laughs> yeah. was on the poster mm. yeah but yeah. It, it, blackmail is another one the the, mm. the Hitchcock movie that has both um, a sound yeah. and a oh. silent version and both of them yeah. are amazing mm-hmm. and, and doing like different things with them so yeah. that's I'm always interested in, in seeing the movies like right from that period yeah. and how people like you know because that was such a huge you know both gift obviously to movies but like it, obstacle I think for a lot of people that it separated like men from the boys I think in terms of like who can do something with this and who can actually like run with it yeah so I, I guess also very ob- also just an, an, an obvious with Fritz Lang's movie are very interesting for me for that. Yeah. 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 yeah I definitely like showed uh, M in my sound or the sound week in my class and like the student, you know, it's 
I would say that there was sometimes a bit of a resistance for movies that were, you know, more than 20 years old. <laughs> <laughs> that one is just barely. Yeah, uh, but no, M was one that just everyone was like, yeah, that movie is like perfect. And mm. I was like, yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's always refreshing to hear. Like yeah. when you're showing yeah. things to, yeah. to film students, we like talk about that sometimes. Was there anything else that you've encountered where you showed it to them and they were just like, yes, great. Or is everything else like viewed with skepticism? I will say that, um, Gold Diggers of 33 went over so well. I mean, that, that, all, all killer, no filler, but, that one. And I can say it's another <laughs> one that I think just sort of like scrambled, is like a scrambler because there's mm. this level of, um, you kind of think you know what you're getting from, or they think they know what they're getting. Right. And they were just like, the women like are good in this movie, but why do they want to get married? And I was like, because it's the Depression, the movie's called Gold Digger. Like, uh, <laughs> but, it's in the title. Yeah, but they were like, they were like, this movie doesn't seem very sexist. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. Like, <laughs> But you know, it is, uh, yeah, it, it, it's funny, like what, I, I wasn't expecting that to go over as well as it did. Mm. Whereas there's other movies that I was like, oh, it's interesting that this is kind of going over like a, you know, bag of rocks when I thought it would be something that everyone would love. Yeah. I mean, Cronenberg kills. <laughs> oh, it does yeah. kill. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. In my experience. <laughs> there's, there's probably an overlap of what kills in repertory, you know, yeah. like the old standbys we talk about and probably what kills with a, with a yeah. class in that sort of setting. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I don't have as extensive teaching experience, but I do remember showing certain films and just, I'm like, you know, and at the end it's just nothing. I'm like, What's, you know, you, you have a pulse, don't you? <laughs> like, how could you not respond to that? Yeah. yeah but interesting. Um, what, and just the the series we were just talking about, the film form, that's mm -hmm. jumping off a book, right? Is that, or am I? I, I believe it I is. Think. I think it's a new biography about both um, yeah. Rifkin and yes. Ray. Uh, it's a, a by their daughter. Okay. Yeah, Hollywood memoir, it's called. So that's, that's in progress now. It's. It is. It looks like form. it's. Uh, there's a couple of Lost Horizons coming uh -huh. up later this week. Ooh, that's exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, Mystery of the Wax Museum. Uh -huh. The whole town's talking. You can't take it with you. There's a lot of good stuff in the series. Oh God, yeah. The Bowery Lady for a Day. Mm -hmm. Come on. Yeah. A yeah. lot of hits. That's yeah. yeah. That's one of those series where it's just yeah. You know, a great excuse to play a ton right. of amazing movies yeah. <laughs> yeah. beyond making kind of a, a compelling case about their partnership and you know the artistic choices they were making over the course of their you know, relationship. So. Yeah. Join us at Film Society of Lincoln Center on Thursday, April 4th at 5.30 p.m. for a film comment free talk with director Claire Denis and star Robert Pattinson from the singular new film High Life. Tickets to this free event will be distributed at the Eleanor Boone and Monroe Theater box office on a first-come, first-served basis starting at 4.30 p.m. on April 4th. For more information, visit filmlink.org. We hope to see you there for what's sure to be a stellar conversation. The new issue of Film Comment is out now, with features on Claire Denis' High Life, Alex Ross Perry's Her Smell, Christian Petzl's Transit, Laszlo Nemesh's Sunset, Jafar Panahi on the process of secretly making movies, plus the not-so-secret gay history of a cult film magazine. Also, read Ari Aster on The Last Temptation of Christ and reviews of Ashes Purest White, Peterloo, and more. Get your copy today at filmcomment.com. Well, where does that leave us? What else? Are there things coming up that are further on the horizon, maybe? I think we're all very excited about the estimable Nick Pinkerton's uh, truck series uh, <laughs> that's, that's coming right. up to, to two anthology film archives, um, which I, of course, encourage people to 
frequent anthology always as much as possible, but especially, you know, they're closing the summer for renovations. True. And they will be down for, you know, at least a year. It sounds like it could be a couple of years. So they're very, mm. and that's, that's a major blow to the repertory scene in New York. Uh, yeah. Jed Rapfogel, the programmer there, is, I think, pound for pound, the, the best programmer in the city and has been for a really long time. And will be, um, hopefully they'll be able to, we'll have some couch surfing programs around the city with Jed because I don't want to lose his programming voice. I mean, just selfishly as, as a viewer, someone who goes to see a lot of repertory movies at my own venue, but other venues as well. Yeah. Um, he is someone who, you know, a lot of some of the, the first programming things I ever did in the city were, you know, things I pitched on a whim to Jed and he was kind enough to, I'll, I'll, you know, give me the floor and the, and the space to do that. So I not only owe him a lot in terms of my, my programming history, I just really love the work he does. And they are going real deep right now on transportation and infrastructure and yeah which i i only just realized when you're talking about it, i guess that must be some not so subconscious having to do with the construction going on there. oh that's true oh yeah. i didn't i mean that would that jed would do that <laughs> like that actually sounds high concept enough just, for him yeah, yeah just to psychoanalyze yeah wow wow <laughs> all they're adding a cafe so all yeah. movies set in cafes Re <laughs> renovations on film that's right yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, and that's I will end up with the burbs or no what money what is it money pit, money pit sorry yeah yeah but but we're we're approaching I don't know if I don't know if you guys are familiar with what will happen with the film screenings at MoMA while they're closed over the summer because they're closing for renovation so oh. MoMA might be down for film screenings repertory mm -hmm. I don't know anthology will yeah. definitely I be remember, down so. uh, <sighs> God this is I remember 16 years ago <laughs> when, they, years when ago. they shut down for a while Oh, um, the Gramercy Theater. And they were at the, the Gramercy. Which was, I, I think, a true golden age. I loved it so yeah. much. I yeah. remember seeing like a number of things there, and it was a beautiful theater. Yeah, but also yeah. like kind of run down, too. Like, yeah. a, like a weird it was, atmosphere. It was, and I don't, it's like a stretch. I, I mean, I suppose there's concerts and things there that I don't go to. There are concerts, yeah. But like, um, it's like a street I can't remember being on, really, <laughs> other than like going, right, yeah. like, you know. It, it, it's like 23rd. It's 23rd, but it's a little farther east, right? Yeah. I I, I think we were both in college at the time yeah. that that was happening. And I, you know, we with a with like a school ID, you get in for free yeah. yep. to all the all the film programs. So I was constantly going down there. And and for me, I was early being in New York. So I was like, oh, this is what seeing movies at MoMA is. And I was like, no, yeah. this is <laughs> this is very different and very different audience, very really different vibe to get yeah. what the programming that MoMA was doing, but in this radically different space was really fascinating. Well, they should yeah. definitely do that again. Well, I mean, it was, <laughs> but it, but it, 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 I, I think it was like a, early on when I wasn't so conscious of it, thinking about, programming and venue and it's something that i know that we all think a lot about people who program for venues or when you doing freelance stuff now you think about what program works at what theater yeah. because the space itself and the audience and the location in the city make such a huge difference that you know you can't do like the 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 series that they're doing at film forum right now with the pre-code movies at like a draft house like it just wouldn't work because it's a completely different yeah. kind of a demographic I mean, one real heartbreaker, I must say, uh, while well, I love Alice Tully Hall uh, during the New York Film Festival, mm. when Tully was shut down for a few years and you guys were at the Zigfields, <laughs> that was awesome. Yes. And it's especially, you know, only grown in my estimation um, since because I've seen what the interior of the Zigfield looks like now. And it is a 
travesty. Yeah, I can't even bear to, to think so yeah. many of my it formative soul crushing what, yeah. what's happened to it. It, it just doesn't yeah. make any sense to me why you would do that. Money. I, but yeah. how I mean, how do you get more money making it look just like super ugly inside? It's a, it's, <laughs> it's a midtown. I mean, like, yeah. That's what I mean, it's want. like it's a convention space. It'd be like a liability for to have too much personality. Yeah, right. Almost, but yeah, I don't. But well, no, it, like maybe it would just know. change the face of American business if that's they were true. just had like had to like sit there with like velvet walls and like. <laughs> yeah, and really thinking big. Man, there's so much beauty in the world. What are we doing with our with our lives? <laughs> that's, yeah. what that's what they're afraid of. Yeah, revolution. You know, every meeting being kicked off by a guy in a tux with a mic coming down or yeah. it could be that way it, it, it's always fun when there's couch surfing you know when light industry they were mm -hmm. between venues and going to other venues and you see the kind of programming that different places do in new spaces i, I love that and it really yeah. can be very instructive about why something works why it doesn't you know how you react to a particular film or what different people are doing yeah yeah my, I just go back to Gramercy for a second. I definitely have. The, the, I was hitting that place pretty hard, and remember seeing all sorts of rare Renier there. Mm. I want to say maybe there was a Delphine Sirig series that was happening. That I'm not, that, maybe I'm mixing up right, memories. That like Larry Kardish yeah. did. Yeah, like yeah, and yeah. and that was seeing all of it together, all of her films together, was sort of a revelation for me, and kind of, yeah, filled in a part of the French film history landscape in a different way. Um, because I think she was kind of positioned as more or less like as a actor auteur in a way through right. what she chose, um, which also I hadn't seen that type of program too much, um, either. I saw like a um projector performance that like Ken Jacobs was oh, yeah. doing with like the nervous uh -huh. projector system when that was there, and that made a real impression on me in college yeah. for sure. Yeah. And also, it is like amazing then you know, you go on to work in a theater, and I mean, I think you know, MoMA, which it, it makes a, a lot of sense, um considering how important they are as an archive and all these things, but like they're able to do these like very complicated shows, like in terms of like the production of the show, yep. but like to know how complicated it would be to do a show like that with your own booth to be in a temporary booth and be doing like projector performance. I'm just yeah. like, man, that is ambitious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, we, I don't know if we want to just mention a few things coming up, other things coming up that we're, we're looking forward to. I mean, just quickly, since we probably can wrap up soon. Oh, well, tonight I'm going to go see this thing at Light Industry. It's Voices of God by um, Al Santana, um, which is a 1985 um, independent film, um, black independent film that is about the sort of contemporary American practitioners of various um Yoruba and Akan religions in Brooklyn, which uh, it's a movie that I've heard about for a while. It's supposed to be just like beautifully photographed and, um, you know, has these kind of high profile fans. Um, uh, Greg Tate and a number of other people have definitely sung its praises. So mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. excited to see that. Yeah. And then, uh, um, Chris, I think you were mentioning earlier, that's uh, a show that's on the horizon at MoMA, uh, the Roberto Gavadon. Yes, which is super exciting. It's, it's it's one of those, um, you have bittersweet feelings when someone beats you to a program because um, I've been wanting to do a retrospective of his work for a while. The last one I think Richard Pena did here at the Film Society, I would say over a decade ago. And and even that, I think it's 
you know, possible to go deeper sometimes in these retrospectives now with mm. digital restorations. There have been a number um, done by the Cinematheque in Mexico City of um, of his work. So I think Richard played like nine films and there's several more playing in, in this one. But it's bittersweet because you don't get to do it, but it's still happening. And I'm really glad that someone has, is doing it and doing it well. Um, Dave Kerr has been doing amazing work with a lot of Mexican cinema at MoMA over the last several years and some really amazing noir programs. I mean, you know, international noir, like it's always uh, just prints money in in, like repertory, (laughs) like noir, generally you slap the word noir on something, even when it's not a noir movie. And it's just like, people will show up. People love film noir. Um, So he has been showing a number of those films in some of these other series, but this is focused. And every time I've gone to those series, I'm like, well, the best ones are all by Gaveldon every, every, every mm-hmm. single time. Mm-hmm. And there are some true uh, discoveries in there. Um, he's someone like, you know, Emilio Fernandez, who, who made movies in a lot of different genres and mm-hmm. worked, worked across things. And I, I can speak probably best to the noirs that I've seen, but uh, every single one that uh, is there is um, pretty amazing things. You're just like, how did Brian De Palma not find this and remake this yet? Right. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Which which maybe can happen. Maybe that's maybe that's still in the cards. Yeah, yeah. So it's the program is called Night Falls in Mexico. It's late April into May, and I think these a lot of these are digital restorations, which look um, quite beautiful from the times I've seen them previously. One I'm really excited to see is El Socio, which is um, uh, I realize an adaptation of. Um, of a book that was uh, adapted also as the associate, the Whoopi Goldberg movie. Uh, (laughs) But this is Gavaldon's 1946 version of it, which sounds pretty remarkable about uh, an ambitious young man who discovers that he has a fictitious business partner that makes his deal making easier because the partner has an Anglo-Saxon name. So in, in, in the, the, in the associate with, with Whoopi, if memory serves, it's that the partner is a man and that's how she's able to, uh, you know, kind of succeed. But um, in the palm of your hand, the other one and the kneeling goddess, I would say are all completely unmissable, true mm. revelations of, you know, uh, post-war crime and mm. mystery noir movies. I, mm. I, I hesitate to say too much about them, but they are like real genuine discoveries and and they're beautifully restored and someone should acquire those restorations and actually give them a more proper home video release too. Cause I'd really like to see them made more available. I think they will blow a lot of people's minds. Wow. Strong words from Chris Wells. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I don't, I don't give that often. I will say, but, but for those gavel Dawn movies, he's, he's a really special artist. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'll say there's a Gretchen Bender show in Chelsea that I want to see. Um, she's an interesting sort of, I mean, I think it, it's maybe, uh, up for debate, sort of what generation she's falling into, but kind of somewhere between like pictures generation and like something after making these kind of video sculptures and like multi-channel installations. Um, she also did like some interesting commercial work. And one thing that she had a number of sort of like a title sequences for things like America's Most Wanted, which oh. apparently like I was trying to look it up on YouTube to see what it looked like but everyone was like you know the famous title sequence from America's Most Wanted and I was like what is it what (laughs) what could it have been but like um I'm excited to check that out in Chelsea and sub for a couple more months 
But one other shout out for something that is actually, it is a little bit down the road, but you actually need to plan to go to it. I just got my reminder email for um, my ticket to the Night Treat Picture Show. We need to talk about that. I think I, will, I, think I want oh, to go with right. you. Uh, yeah. Which yeah. is... Tell, tell people who might not be familiar about what that phenomenon is. It's magical. It is, <laughs> it's the fourth or fifth year. I can't remember. And I, and um, I missed the last two years because I was at a friend's wedding and like a film shoot. And I was so angry that both of those events could not be scheduled around the Nitrate Picture Show. I've been, <laughs> I think I've been to three and I had a miss last year for work, but it is in uh, Rochester, New York, which I don't know how many of the listeners of the podcast are New York City based, but mm. if you're anywhere within like a four or five hour drive, I would say it's worth considering. Mm -hmm. The George Eastman House is one of, I believe, three venues in the United States that can show nitrate prints at this point. Um, the only one in the immediate vicinity for the us. The other two are in California. Yeah. And MoMA used to be able to, but cannot, hasn't been able since this restaurant, since the renovation when they were at the Gramercy. So it's been 16 oh. years since MoMA's been able to do it. Mm. And nitrate prints are, you know, it was the film stock. Um, for many years, but it was highly flammable. And it is, I believe it went out in the 50s. And it's one of those things, which I think when you are interested in like sort of the exhibition of film, like there's always this like sort of competing thing in your head where you're like, I don't want to be like a nostalgist or a fetishist, but also like film looks better than digital. And then, you know, with nitrate, it's like, well, nitrate looks better than safety. <laughs> but there's also an element that these are just original camera negative uh, prints often of these films, uh, original Technicolor color processes, original, uh, you know, Gaspar color uh, processes, like uh, everything you're seeing is like sort of exactly how it once, how it was uh, when it was originally made. Um, and the prints have been astonishing yeah, every I, year that yeah, I've gotten. Pretty, pretty revelatory experiences, maybe even yeah. especially for films that you've seen before seeing them this way you know it's like you haven't seen it until you've seen it in nitrate i think they they like to say but it, it kind of is true they look like whole new movies the first hmm. year that we went actually we'd co-programmed the series at bam where we showed portrait of jenny that's right that's right and this, this this was so amazing so we had just watched and, and nitrate like tell you right they didn't announce their line, lineup until you get there basically so it's always uh -huh. a surprise so yeah. we had just watched portrait of jenny what four days prior uh, <laughs> like less than like we'd just watched it a couple nights prior we like carpool to rochester we get to the eastman house and it's um you know okay like the movie that's showing tomorrow night is portrait of jenny and, you know, the print that shows often when you uh, show Portrait of Jenny is a restored print that MoMA did the restoration. Mm -hmm. I think like with the Academy or something, yep. it's like very beautiful, very well done restoration. I've seen the movie countless times. This print, it was like, there were things I saw in that print when I saw it in Nitrate, like the sort of depth of frame, um, uh, you know, in Portrait of Jenny, Jenny's often like sort of appearing from like the distance and there's like right. sort of a, a fog or whatever. Yeah. Um, and like all of that, the detail and all of that was like incredible. Um, I think Nick Pinkerton wrote about it after that first year that um, it makes sense that nitrate going out is like right when 3D comes in because the depth of field that you're experiencing mm -hmm. in the nitrate is quite different than what you're experiencing later. Mm -hmm. The color is incredible. I mean, I, I think they almost always show a Powell Pressburger movie, and those you think those movies pop as they are now, but boy, yeah, yeah. Uh, like metallics. Uh, there is more silver in the emulsion or whatever, and like mm -hmm. again, 
I don't know how much of this is my imagination. Like <laughs> I, I really am not like a person who can quantify very well. But but, but I, like it does. It's like it's like you know you're watching Samson and Delilah and like everyone's like necklaces are shimmering and it's it's beautiful. I, I actually think yeah. what what I've always wanted them to do from a programming standpoint at this festival is at least once give everyone else the experience that we had that first year accidentally, which is to show a film on a regular 35 print and then on a nitrate print, because I think that would be kind of the most instructive way that the audience could really appreciate and see that difference. Because us with that privileged perspective, I think kind of set the tone for future nitrates for us and we sort of got it right away. Yeah. And, and I think that other people, you could look at it and you're like, it's amazing. It's beautiful. I can't quite put my finger on why it's so special. I almost need the, the sample to, to compare it. Mm. And it's also, it's like, it's a great mix, uh, what they always end up showing. Uh, it, so one thing that's like really beautiful about the event as well is that because there's so few theaters that can show nitrate, um, and so, f and many of the um, archivists who work with nitrate are primarily looking at it on flatbeds and things, mm. especially in those first few years, the um, archivist would be like, okay, well, we're going to show this print, right? That we've, uh, that I restored or whatever I, I preserved. I, you know, have been, uh, I first like touched this print, like, you know, two decades ago mm -hmm. and they would give an introduction, you know, talk about their work in nitrate vaults in um, Library of Congress, MoMA, all these places. Mm -hmm. And in a couple cases, there was people who'd worked with nitrate like their whole lives who were like, I've actually never seen it projected on a screen. Oh, wow. And like, you know, it really is an occasion, you know, because again, like it's uh, I believe like one theater. I think they renovated the Egyptian to do nitrate. And then there's like. UCLA, maybe? I yes, I, UCLA. I, 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 I believe those are the only... Yeah. Well, no, and the Stanford in uh, Palo Alto. Oh. Yeah, that. but it, re it really does attract cinephiles oh, from... The from, personalized plates? Yeah, this is one of, our, one of our favorite habits, is looking at the, the vanity license plates of attendees. Yeah, it, you know, it's show. like cinema, like film lover. <laughs> it's, it's really cool. <laughs> and, like, coming from, like, you know, states all around. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. Wow. The number 35 on a lot of those. Oh, yeah, plates. 35 millimeter. 35, yeah, it's... 35 um, for Eva. Lover. Yeah. 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 Right. L-U-V-R. <laughs> but anyways, if, um, if you're yeah. anywhere in the vicinity, it's definitely worth coming through. I think yeah. there are tickets available for, like, single movies, but most people buy passes. I don't know really the availability, but mm. definitely look it up. Well, that yeah. seems like a lovely way to to finish a uh, unique cultural event that proves something wonderful, I think. Um, so, well, thank you both. Thank you, Chris, for journeying uptown. Uh, not just to see the a only movie. time. The only time I'll do it all year. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, thank you so much for having me. Big, yeah. big fan of the big fan of the cast. Long time listener, first okay. time, <laughs> first time guest, first time guest, and thanks you, Nelly, as well. Thanks, Nick. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. <laughs>